0: Greetings and welcome to the 5 by your favorite source for rapid-fire board game reviews, a proud member of the Inside Voices Network, and now on Patreon. We have an excellent episode for you this week. First up, Sarah takes us deep in Clank Legacy. Luke rises to the occasion to cover the Phoenix Syndicate. John tries to get on your wavelength in Medium. I spread out my thoughts in 8-Minute Empire Legends. And last but certainly not least, Ruth explores the Artemis Project.
1: This is a spoiler-free review of Clank Legacy. I've completed the campaign, but I'll talk in generalities and won't give away anything you wouldn't know the first time you open the box. This review also assumes you're at least somewhat familiar with the original Clank. If you want to learn more, check out the previous review of Clank in episode 16 by... Oh yeah, that was me. Also check out Ruth's great review of Clank in space in episode 22. Okay, Clank Legacy is, surprise surprise, a legacy version of Clank, the popular deck-building, dungeon-crawling, dragon-attacking game. Designed by Andy Cloudus and Paul Denon, the game's full title is Clank Legacy Acquisitions Incorporated. If that makes you think of Penny Arcade, you're right. The fictitious adventuring company they created features heavily in the plot of the campaign. There's very funny flavor text throughout the game, and Penny Arcade are co-publishers along with Direwolf Digital and Renegade Games. I loved the original Clank, and as I mentioned in my prior review, my only real complaint was that, with repeated plays, the map starts to get overly familiar, even stale. Clank Legacy attacks that problem like a band of underpaid but highly enthusiastic adventurers for hire. In your first game, the bottom third of the map is literally empty. Adding stickers to make the game feel different is a core legacy mechanism, and Clank Legacy uses it with gusto. You can't get bored with the map because it changes, often dramatically, in every game. With adding new areas to the map and new elements to existing areas, there is so much stickering that there were a few times it almost started to feel a little too much, like stopping to place the stickers over and over was slowing the game down. But that was infrequent. For the most part, I loved watching the map grow and change from game to game. Along with stickers, pretty much all the legacy game elements you'd expect are here. New rules, a deck that starts small and gets bigger as you go along, A storybook with numbered passages, sealed envelopes and boxes, and cards with short term objectives. These are called contracts in Clank Legacy, and the game uses this mechanism to great effect. In every game, we had at least a couple of contracts, often five or six. Depending on how quickly you fulfill them, you might have a whole row of contracts. Contracts give you something to aim for besides just getting the most points. They provide a lot of the opportunities to read from the adventure book, and they often yield a fun bonus, like getting to choose what sticker to place in a specific spot. One issue I have with competitive legacy games is that unless the players are very well-matched, the campaign starts to feel lopsided. Like every game you don't win, you're just falling further behind. Clank Legacy solves this by adding additional goals besides winning. In fact, you don't actually know how the campaign is won until it's over. Besides the contracts, there are checkmarks of grudging approval, which you collect for various tasks, some of which are specific to each character. And there's the associate spotlight, which is given for a different achievement in each game. Sometimes fulfilling a specific contract, sometimes discovering part of the map, or ending the game with the most of something. It's different every time. The Associate Spotlight is recorded at the end of every game, and it's a nice little perk to write your name down even if you didn't win. I know, this mechanism is poking fun at a real-life corporate tactic and making use of it at the same time. What can I say? It works. There were many games during the campaign that I basically ignored winning and focused entirely on fulfilling contracts and getting the associate spotlight, and those games were immensely satisfying. I saw on BoardGameGeek that the recommended player count is 4. I played a two-person campaign of Clank Legacy, and I have absolutely no complaints. I never felt like the board was too open or easy. There was just less of the bad frustration, where you set yourself up to get an artifact or fulfill a contract, and someone else swoops in and grabs it out from under you. There was one required task that seemed impossible for two players, and had a negative consequence for failing. But then again, there were sometimes rewards that everyone could get, but with diminishing value. With only two players, we both got a good reward. So it balanced out. With two people, we treated Clank Legacy as almost semi op dividing up required tasks and making sure we fulfilled all the contracts. There was even one game where we had a run of really bad luck early on, and both took a lot of damage from dragon attacks. We were both in danger of dying before the game really got going, and neither one of us wanted that, so we just… stopped buying cards from the adventure row. No new cards meant no dragon attacks, or at least so few that we could complete the game. I'm sure the more cutthroat players out there would think we weren't playing right or something, but who cares? We didn't break any rules, and we played the game the way we wanted to. Like most Legacy games, Clank Legacy promises a customized game you can continue to play after the campaign is complete. And while I've never actually done that with a Legacy game, I feel like this is the one. Because I still love Clank, and I'm still kind of tired of the maps in the original game. And Clank Legacy has two maps that I've only played a few times each. When I play, I'll fondly remember placing this or that sticker on the board. Though I suspect more often, I'll curse myself for placing this sticker in that inconvenient spot. What was I thinking? Why didn't I realize I'd need it later over there on the other side of the map? Besides, there was a mechanism that we could have started using in Game 1, but we didn't actually stumble onto it until Game 9. I have to play again. I hardly got to use that mechanism. And that's Clank Legacy. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenal. Especially if you've also finished Clank Legacy, and you want to have a spoilerific chat about it. Then I really want to hear from you.
2: Nostalgia is a powerful thing, casting the past in a comforting, soft-focus haze. While companies like Disney and Funko have made obscene fortunes by weaponizing nostalgia, the board game industry has a weird relationship with it. Many of us have those warm, fuzzy feelings for our early gaming ventures, but the competitive and social nature of gaming is at odds with the exaltation of the past. We're constantly pressured to buy the new hotness, to see incremental changes as title shifts, and to look on the old with a critical eye rather than a fond one. The hobby wants us to see mechanisms as fashions, cycling out of favor as new ones come into play. Most of us have nostalgic games that, for us, will always stand the test of time, regardless of how many people tell us they're out of date. Mine are Raw and Carcassonne. But even with those bygone games still occupying a protected place in our hearts, we are still so conditioned to slaver over new shinies, games that issue old-time mechanisms in favor of the new flavor of the year, that when a game gets described as a throwback, our natural reaction is to recoil. I ask you not to recoil when I use that description for The Phoenix Syndicate, a throwback board game in all the greatest ways. The Phoenix Syndicate is a 2019 sci-fi route-building game by Osmati Games, the small publisher responsible for fantastic titles like Red 7, One Deck Dungeon, and Innovation. The primary thrust of The Phoenix Syndicate sees players building networks of agents and bases across a randomly generated, hex-based system map with the ultimate goal of building and scoring trade routes. Each trade route card depicts three planets and is scored if a player has an agent or outpost on some or all of the depicted planets, with bonuses being granted for a presence at multiple. Each turn, you select one of four actions, expand to install agents in new systems, smuggle goods from systems where you have an agent, deploy a new base, or infiltrate a corp to upgrade one of your actions. Whenever you take an action, you remove your action cube, called a director, from that action and can't take it again until the director is replaced. This is where the scheme action comes into play. In the style of hand builders like Concordia or Century Spice Road, the scheme action replaces all of your spent directors, allowing you to take those actions again on future turns. But the real crux of the game, the bit that feels both elegant and nostalgic, lies in the interaction between the planet tiles and the expand action. Each tile depicts a planet and the resources it produces, Around its edges are varying numbers and types of resources. The edge of one tile may depict two water and be lined up against a tile depicting four spice, and the sum of those resources is the cost to move between those two planets. Those costs are not ongoing and only apply to the expand action, so one of the most interesting parts of the Phoenix Syndicate's efficiency puzzle is trying to figure out the cheapest way to fly when setting up your trade routes. These tiles are placed at random each game, creating wildly different maps and routes every time you play. And it's in this puzzle where the game's nostalgic feel really shines. Virtually every individual part of the Phoenix Syndicate feels almost simplistic by modern standards, but they cohere in such a satisfying way and present a decision space that strikes all the same chords as our bygone favorites. Although many might see the graphic design by Alana Servanek, Stefani Gustafsson, and Evan Derrick as simplistic, it's clean, easy to parse, uncluttered, and in my opinion beautiful, and honestly lends to the game's charm but I do have a couple of minor component gripes. The ship minis feel a bit, I don't know, flimsy, and the director tokens come across cheap. My biggest issue though is with the agent tiles. The small triangular design would be fine if they were brighter, but the dark design with dim color only at the tips ends up making the tokens hard to differentiate at a distance, and sometimes single tokens are even difficult to see against the darkness of the map tiles. All of that might make the $40 online price tag a little hard to swallow for some people. Keep in mind, however, that Osmati is a small publisher and doesn't have the resources of megaliths like Asmodee. Half the reason I included that sentence was to prove that I wasn't just mispronouncing Asmodee whenever I said Osmati. What's truly amazing is how the Phoenix Syndicate manages to feel classic without feeling dated. Ted and Rebecca Vicenez stated that they spent almost a decade on the design, and it shows not only in the nostalgic feel, but in the elegance and tightness of the system. It stands tall in the modern space, triggering all that genuine nostalgia without ever feeling old. While many of us old-timers may feel those familiar warm and fuzzies, The Phoenix Syndicate presents an intriguing puzzle for new gamers as well, all wrapped up in a package that only takes about an hour to play. I'm worried it might not be widely available by the time you're listening to this, but if it is, go grab a copy. It truly is a fantastic little game. My name is Luke, and you can find me customizing my games on BGG and Instagram at pixelartmeeple, or on my website pixelartmeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming!
3: I'm always on the lookout for games that can accommodate larger groups of people. Games that could spare us from an evening spent pairing up funny-slash-offensive cards for hours on end. I was glad to find Medium, a game that touts itself as a mind-reading party game. Medium is the first game from designers Danielle Deli, Nathan Thornton, and Lindsay Sherwood. It features art and design by Sarah Kelly. It's published by Greater Than Games and plays 2 to 8 players. So how do you play this guessing game of psychic connectedness? Well, each player is dealt 6 cards. On each of the cards is one word. Just one word set against a stylized but austere background with a yellow art deco design along the card's edges. On your turn, the player on your left plays a card from their hand and reads it out loud. You then play a card of your choosing from your own hand. Once the two cards are on the table, both players count down from three and simultaneously say one word or concept that connects the two words on the cards. Let's say your teammate plays the word movie. You look through your cards knowing that you and your friend are movie buffs. You play the word sled. You figure it's a slam dunk. Clearly the most famous movie sled is Rosebud from Citizen Kane. You give each other a knowing glance and you both count down from three hoping that you're both making the same association between the two words. That somehow you've both arrived at the same logical conclusion. You count down. 3, 2, 1, and the two of you say the same word, rosebud. Great, you've managed to arrive at the same concept. You've found the medium and you score some points. There are three piles of mind the melt tokens on the table. Since you found the medium on your first try, you get to take a face-down token from the first attempt pile. It's worth either 5 or 6 points. The token goes between you and your partner, proof of your psychic prowess. If you and your teammate weren't able to make the psychic link on your first try, well, you get two more tries. Maybe instead of saying rosebud, your partner said cool runnings. Well, now you have to find the medium between rosebud and (sighs) cool runnings. If you succeed, you take a point from the second pile of tokens and these are worth either 3 or 4 points. Fail again and you get one more try, and yep, the tokens in that pile are worth a paltry one or two points. Gameplay proceeds clockwise with players drawing back up to six cards at the end of their turn. Once all three shattered crystal balls that were randomly placed in the bottom third of the deck are drawn, players finish out the round and the game is over. If you manage to harness your inner medium, you should have two piles of scoring tokens, one between the player on your left and one with the player on your right. Essentially everyone at the table is on two teams and the team with the highest score at the end of the game wins. That's pretty much the whole game. Well, there's a bit more to medium than that. Since your partner plays their card first, you have the opportunity to respond to their word. You're essentially counting on either simple word association or having something in your hand that will fire up and synchronize the synapses between you and your partner. Sometimes there's a spark and sometimes there's nothing but an awkward look and calls for players to explain their guesses. And you'd think that being overly familiar with the person you're trying to mind meld with would give you an edge, but that's not always the case. I've seen couples struggle to eke out a few points, and best friends fail to find that mind-to-mind connection. And maybe that's just the nature of medium. After all, the rulebook reminds you not to feel bad about not being able to make that mind-to-mind connection. But when things do line up, and you and your partner say the same word at the same time, it's kind of magical. I know that the word magical gets thrown around board game reviews for those moments where a game shines, but it's pretty accurate when describing how it feels to make that connection and to be on the same page with your teammate. Even when it's not my turn and I see it happen, when other teams sync up and they blurt out the same word at the same time, it looks like magic. It's a palpable feeling. People get excited, they cheer, high fives are exchanged. So it's kind of fitting in a way that medium is a game with some very pronounced highs and lows. Some teams will hit those magic high notes in which the game sings and is a blast and for some it may be a frustrating experience when their team falls behind in points. And if you're not into keeping track of the points, then don't. The game recommends that the best way to play is whatever way you and your friends play it. And most of the time, don't we do that with party games anyway? Don't we stop keeping score and focus on the laughs and moments that the game creates? However, you decide to play it, Medium is sure to create some memorable moments for your next game night, and I recommend it. For the five by, I'm John Gonzalez. Thanks for listening. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter as Book of Nerds.
0: Many years ago, when I was still somewhat newer to the modern board gaming scene, I stumbled upon Fjords, the long out of print, and that's why I could never cover it on the five by Area Control game, and I loved it. Was Area Control my jam? Turns out the answer is a resounding no. But before giving up, I did end up giving 8-Minute Empire Legends from Ryan Lockett and Red Raven Games a try, and I'm glad I did. In 8-Minute Empire Legends, we are starting with four armies on the board in two shared locations. From there, we buy one-time used cards from the biro that trigger immediately and allow us to move our armies, build cities, remove opponents' armies, or add more armies to either the start location or wherever we have cities. After we've used that card's actions, which are depicted on the bottom of the card, it gets placed face up in front of you for scoring later. The board in 8-Minute Empire Legends consists of four smaller boards placed together that each contain at least one island on them. I feel like moving the armies is the more difficult action to understand, so I'll explain that further. If an island is split up into multiple parts with a solid white line, that means it costs one action to move one army to that next section. So moving two armies two sections is four movement. You can pass through any section without stopping, even if it contains another army. But moving across the ocean between boards via the dotted line path costs you three actions per army. So to move two armies between two boards is six movement. Except only the cursed banshee card gives you six movement. You could hold out to get it, or you can pick up cards that give you special bonuses depicted on the top half of the card. These often help increase your abilities, such as add additional armies each time you place more armies, or more important for moving between islands, additional army movement or flight. Flight reduces the cost to move between islands by one for each army. So now moving two armies between boards is a much more reasonable four movement. But in reality, cities are the key to covering as much as possible, though there are only eight build cities cards in the whole deck. But if you can move one army to another island and build a city, well, now you can start placing new armies in that territory and start to spread out again from there. The game ends when each player reaches a certain number of cards played. By then, you usually have your whole 18 cube army out and hopefully control a majority of a few territories. You score one point for each territory on an island that you have a majority in and one point for each island where you control a majority of the territories, ignoring all ties. You can also gain points for buying certain cards, like the one that gives you points for each curse card in front of you. You can rack up a lot of points from just the cards, which helps when you aren't able to get the board working out the way you want. Two-player plays mostly the same, except during setup you alternate putting out ten cubes of a neutral army. It's less dynamic than playing a three-player game, but it works just fine. And overall, I feel 8-minute Empire Legends scales fairly well from two to four players. If you get bored with the base game and want some variety, there are many expansions and leaders included in the base box. I usually play with some like the leaders and or some of the points of interest like the magic portals for instant movement between two places on the board or citadels. Some I rarely play with like the rampaging dragon, but overall these are minor tweaks to the game. I feel like were the game designed today, these would be bigger changes, like the leaders being truly asymmetrical somehow, but as it is, they just add a little flavor to an otherwise solid game. There is a Lost Lands standalone expansion which offers much more, but that's not really in the scope for this review. Just know that if you try and like the game and want more, it's an option. So what don't I like about the game? Well, per usual, I do have a few nitpicks. But I feel like those mainly relate to the age of 8-Minute Empire Legends. First, the art. While generally amazing, early locket art, there's a distinct lack of diversity compared to his more current games. Like I said before, I wish there was a little more to the included mini expansions. And lastly, the rulebook is masculine pronouns only. I've traded my original 2013 copy in for a 2018 second printing for the minor card updates, but I would have hoped the rulebook at least could have been made gender-neutral at that time. That said, I'm overall positive on Eight Men and Empire Legends. Proof of that can be found in the Tuckbox templates I uploaded to BGG back in 2014, which happened to still work in the second printing. I feel like it's a much more modern take on just playing area majority, with your need to balance the cards you need for abilities and points versus where you need to be on the board. An area majority game that doesn't get overly aggressive in defeating your opponent's armies, you can coexist, just whoever is in the majority wins that point. Yes, there's a decent amount of luck in the game based on how cards come out, But as you can spend coins to buy further down the buy row, you do have some control over that. And I've never seen anyone in a position where what cards are available to them couldn't help them at all. All in all, a solid quick game that despite the name takes about 10 to 15 minutes to play. And that's 8 Minute Empire Legends. If you wish to discuss the game more, or even disagree with me, you're welcome to reach out to me on Twitter at MikeGrizzly. Grizzly.
4: 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here, grabbing a break in the North Carolina rain to talk about games. 2019 saw thousands of board game releases, and so it was easy for many good games to get lost in the noise. At least that's what I told myself when my friend Copac purchased a new title at Origins that I knew nothing at all about. That game was The Artemis Project, designed by Daryl Chow and Daniel Roki, and published by Grand Gamers Guild. Artemis is a dice placement game themed around building a base on Europa in order to explore the frozen moon, while making sure that your team performs just that little bit better than all of the others. The Artemis Project is a dice placement game for 1-5 to five players that takes place over 6 rounds. Everyone starts the round by rolling 5 dice of their color, and then take turns placing in various spots until all are on the board. The players then resolve each area in turn, completing expeditions for rewards, gathering resources from the frozen ocean building new base modules, recruiting more people, and also training those people in different skills. The various sites all have limitations on what's available, and so players have to place dice carefully to avoid missing out on fully resolving them. For example, high-value dice tend to let players get more of particular resources when resolving, but since they typically resolve last at sites, there might not be anything left for the player to collect. So players have to think about whether they prefer to get less, but be able to get those resources earlier. The game does have a relief track that can provide a small gain for players who lose out, but relief is limited and the goal is really to use your dice wisely enough throughout the rounds that you don't end up relying on it too often. The game allows players to experiment with multiple ways of earning points, from completing as many expeditions across the moon as possible to building the most impressive base by the end. The game tends to play quickly, though dice placement can slow things up at higher player counts, particularly in the final round, so if you're in a hurry, playing with the full five might not be the best idea. The resolution phase of each round moves especially smoothly in no small part due to the excellent graphic design work of Joshua Capel. Each placement area has a number next to it so players know what order they'll resolve, and the sites are arranged clockwise around the board, making it even easier. Each round of the game has an event card that affects players in some way, and again, the graphic design helps you remember this. A marker is placed on a letter on the board that matches a letter on the card, and as the sites are resolved, this marker serves as a reminder of when that event needs to be considered. Much of the end-of-round cleanup is also printed on the board, helping all players jump in, resetting quickly and easily for the next phase. I do wish the scoring was also printed somewhere other than on the back of the rollbook, as it does tend to be referenced often, since so many things can score. And I actually intend to make player reference cards, since it seems to be somewhat of an odd omission in an otherwise fantastic example of graphic design work in board gaming. One of the things I love most about the Artemis project is the specificity of the game's theme. Rather than generic space exploration, the game set on Europa's frozen surface particularly, and in the cold sea below the ice. The event and expedition cards feature flavor text talking about the hardships of space life, the harsh conditions, and even a ton of strange creatures found within that frozen ocean, which creates a fairly rich sci-fi story for players who care, while being fairly easy to ignore if you care more about the mechanics of the game. The art from Dominic Mayer is beautiful, creating a vibrant, eye-catching presentation while still being a relatively small presentation compared to a lot of current games. Players' individual bases do require some room to grow on the table, but the central board is nice and compact, meaning you don't have to have a giant specialized gaming table to enjoy the experience. The Artemis project tends to remind people of alien frontiers in my experience and it certainly shares a space theme and the use of dice placement with that earlier game. But Artemis is cleaner, smoother, and just a bit more modern in feel. The separation of dice placement and dice resolution into separate phases makes for a much more interesting game in my opinion, as you can't be sure your plans are actually going to work out until everyone else gets a chance to affect them. Every single placement of a die affects others at the table, so players will find themselves both foiling each other's plans and helping each other out Different moments of the game, which means you get a highly interactive experience without it feeling too mean or cruel. Basically, the Artemis Project is simply a clever, well-designed, really fun game that scales beautifully at different player counts. I highly recommend taking a closer look if you, like me, missed it in the crowd of recent releases, and it's one game my household can't get enough of. We've even been looking at getting some extra fancy bits, despite the fact that this is a well-produced, very nicely put together game. Until next time, you'll probably be able to find me complaining about having to perform yet another board game call. But if you want to actually talk about playing games, you can always find me on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the
1: 5 By. Follow us on Twitter at 5 bygames Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 bygames Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or check out our website, 5 bygamescom if you like what you hear on the Five By and want to support our work, visit patreon.com slash 5Bygames. Thank you. The Five By is part of the
4: Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content like Greatway Games at insidevoicesnetwork.com.